standing for our sin. And, and this week, as we begin our series leading up to Easter, which is about a month away from us now, we've got the blood on the cross, the red, the red rags on the cross. Sorry, not rags, Reg. Red cloths. This week, as I said, we're starting our brand new series on Easter. And over the next five or six weeks or so, we're going to be following along with Mark as he takes us on a journey through the last week of Jesus' life before his death on the cross. But you might be sitting there and saying, well... Nick, Easter is a little bit like Christmas. I know the story so well. I've heard it so many times over the years. This morning I'd like to suggest that that the stories of, of Easter and Christmas, well, it's the old, old story which we need to be told over and over and over and over again. When I first moved uh, into my, my first house by myself, I, I had a lovely bookshelf and I very proudly got out all my books and, and laid them on a bookshelf. And it was very nice and, and, and I stood back and thought, this is so cool. And it was a few nights later, it must have been two o'clock in the morning, and I was fast asleep in my room and crossed the house and I heard this almighty crash! And I thought that somebody had broken in. I I think I went through and switched on every light in the house to see which window did they break. And it's only right at the end that I arrived in my study and I saw that what had happened was that the books had fallen off, the heaviest books had fallen off the shelf, crashed onto the floor. And so what I did is I got some bookends, some, some nice wooden pieces, and I stuck them at the end of the shelf to stop the books falling off. I'd like to suggest this morning as we begin our Easter series that, that Christmas and Easter are the bookends for our faith. Without the truth that Jesus came, that Jesus died, that Jesus rose again, our faith goes crashing to the ground with an almighty bang. So what is Mark saying to us this morning uh, as we look in chapter 14? says, Mark, I'm going to begin the countdown towards the resurrection of Jesus two days before Passover. Verse 1, it was two days before the Passover. Two days before that great and wonderful festival where the people of Israel came together to celebrate all that God had done for His people. Two days until they'd get together in families and groups to eat the Passover meal together. The meal where they remembered how God all those years ago in Egypt had had delivered them from, from the tyranny of the pharaohs. How God had sent His angel of death to kill the firstborn in the land and how by the blood of the Lamb on their doors the Israelite firstborn was saved. Two days until the nation would relive on a symbolic level that event. Two days. Two days before they would remember freedom. And less than a week 
before the cross. Back then, the Passover meant so much to you if you were Jewish. Uh, if, if you were Jewish, you would make every effort to go at least once in your lifetime to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. It's not the same, but it's kind of like Mecca. You, you know the Muslims say, you have to go to Mecca at least once in a lifetime. For the Jews, you went to Jerusalem at least once to celebrate the Passover. If you lived close enough, you'd go as often as you could because it was a huge thing. And, and not surprisingly, every Passover, every year, the city would just expand to an incredible size. Two, three, four, maybe even five times the size it usually was. And it wasn't just any old tourists. These were religious people. People focused on God bringing freedom. Which to me sounds like a recipe for civil unrest. I mean, here is the nation of Israel under the rule of Rome. Slaves, in effect, to Rome. And it's actually interesting that, that during Passover time, the Roman governor moved his residence from Caesarea across to Jerusalem so that he could keep an eye and make sure that things didn't get out of hand. And it's now two days before the Passover festival that the chief priests and the teachers of the law, verse 1, get together to plot the death of Jesus. And they knew that this was a, a crowd that could be sparked so easily and they thought, we're not going to risk a riot, we're not going to risk upsetting the Romans, we won't grab Jesus in public We'll have to be sly about it. But you notice in verse 1 and verse 2, the chief priests and the, the teachers of the law weren't getting together to decide whether to kill Jesus. At this stage, they had already decided Jesus was going to die. And I suspect things had come to a head just a couple of days before chapter 11. That wonderful day when Jesus rode into town and the people laid their, their clothes and palm leaves in front of Him and, and cried, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And the people said, Here comes the Kingdom of God. Here is the Messiah, the Saviour. And I reckon that this didn't please the teachers of the law and the high priests one little bit. Jesus was taking their spotlight and they didn't like it. And so they looked for some sly way that they could grab him and kill him. And I find it quite ironic that in verse 2 they say we're not going to do it during the feast. We're not going to grab Jesus during Passover. Because that's exactly when Jesus does die. Jesus is killed and put on the cross during Passover, the Lamb of God struck down to save His people. But you know, one of the things which really blows my mind when I think of Jesus and His journey towards the cross is that He knew exactly when and exactly how He was going to be killed. 
I mean, it's kind of obvious he's God. He knows this thing, but, but I mean, think about it. Here is Jesus in chapter 14. And he knows exactly what the next few days are going to involve. Here's Jesus and he, and he knows that the chief priests have been plotting for his death. He knows that that very night, one of the men he called friend was going to betray him. What would you or I have done if we'd known what Jesus knew? What would you do if you knew that in a few days you would be betrayed, interrogated, tortured, falsely accused, killed? I myself suspect that I would have run in the opposite direction. And yet look at what Jesus does in chapter 14 of Mark. Verse 3, Jesus knows where he's going and he goes to a party. Goes to a par- he goes to a dinner party. He goes to have a meal at the house of Simon the leper. Probably a, a Passover Eve get-together with, with all of the people coming around and Jesus is the guest of honour and, and it's a big shindig and it's, it's a wonderful time. Mark doesn't tell us much about, about who Simon the leper is. Uh, perhaps he is one of the people that Jesus healed uh, earlier on in his ministry, but, but whoever Simon is, he just wants to throw a party for Jesus and celebrate this man, this Saviour, this God. And I can imagine that things are going down well and they're, they're scoffing the wine and they're, they're eating all sorts of nice stuff. And into the scene steps a woman. And again, Mark doesn't tell us who this woman is. I don't think it matters who she is. What matters is what she does for Jesus. She's got this, this jar of perfume with her. Beautiful, beautiful alabaster jar. If you look in the front of your bulletin, there's, there's a picture of an alabaster perfume jar that they've excavated. It's from about the time of Jesus. Looks a bit grotty on the picture, but it's been in the ground for 2,000... It's actually been in a well of water for 2,000 years. This beautiful jar of perfume. And you can just see her with every step that she takes into the room. The perfume inside the jar gently sloshes from side to side. Mark tells us that this perfume is nard. Uh, if you're a gardener, you might be interested to know that, that nard is made of two, flower, uh, two plants, uh, spike and nadala. And do you know the interesting thing about that? The reason I'm telling you that the reason that, that, that this perfume was so expensive is that Nadala, the main ingredient, comes from Tibet. India at a pinch. This perfume was imported all that way. A huge amount of perfume. According to Mark, it's worth more than a year's wages. Back then, that's about 300 denarii I I looked up the figures for 2009 Australia. Uh, Average yearly wage, $62,000. 
Western Australia, $70,000. Imagine you've got perfume worth $70,000. And she walks up with this. It's probably worth everything she has in life, maybe a bit more. And look what she does. She, she goes up to Jesus and she opens the jar. Uh, they, they were sealed shut, so she has to break it open. And she pours it over Jesus' head. Back in those days, if you really, really wanted to honour somebody, you'd take a bottle of nard and you'd, you'd put one or two drops on somebody's head. I mean, this stuff is, is worth more than petrol. It's expensive stuff. But this woman takes her jug and glug, 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 empties all of it over Jesus' head. I mean, it's not just his head which has got perfume on it. His, his whole body is covered in the stuff. Can you... Can we begin to imagine what was going through her head as she poured out this perfume? I wonder whether she was smiling as she did it. or whether she was crying. We don't know, Mark doesn't tell us, but, but I have an idea that she was crying. Because I think she had an inkling of an understanding of what was about to happen to Jesus. You get a chance, go back and, and read from chapter 8 in Mark up to chapter 14, and Jesus has been putting it out there so plainly, I am going to Jerusalem to die. I suspect this woman heard and understood. And she knew that this wasn't going to be an ordinary Passover. And you know, Mark does describe for us the reaction that the woman gets from from the people sitting around the table. Not everybody, but, but verse 4, some of the people there began to complain to each other. You know that sort of muttering under... Did you see what John did the other day? That sort of muttering under your breath. John hasn't done anything the other day. I don't think. And it gets louder. And person turns to person and and they're talking about this woman. What a waste. What a stupid woman. What a stupid thing to have done. Throwing away a fortune worth of perfume. You know, she could have sold that perfume. She could have got the money and used it for something worthwhile. Like supporting the poor. People actually need something. Surely that would be better than throwing away perfectly good perfume. And you know how things go when you complain to each other. Eventually it builds up enough momentum. And in verse 5, they turn and they look at this woman and they rebuke her harshly. Which is a very polite way to put it. NIV is a polite Bible. Uh, another way to put it is, 
is that they looked at the woman and they snorted at her. The word there is, is you know, the kind of snort that a horse makes. <clears throat> that, that absolute disgust in their voice as they looked at this woman. As they really dig into her. I mean, can you put yourself in her shoes? Just imagine her. She's poured that perfume over Jesus' head, her whole life savings and then some. And as she looks up and around, she meets angry faces. And she hears people abusing her and telling her how stupid she's been. And, and I can almost picture her cautiously, slowly turning her eyes to look at Jesus. His disciples reckon I've done something stupid. What is he going to think of what I've done? Was he going to be upset? Was Jesus' face going to look with anger at her? Had she done the wrong thing? Do you know the story? Jesus looks at her and, and, and instead of jumping down her throat, Jesus jumps to her defence. Verse 6, leave her alone. Stop abusing her like that. Stop bothering her. What she did was a beautiful thing, was, was a good thing, was a right thing, was the proper thing. And as Jesus looks around and he sees the angry faces of the people around him, he, he tries and he, and he puts into the right perspective for them what this woman has done. Says Jesus, she has got the right idea here. She's poured perfume on me to prepare me for burial. You say the money should have gone to the poor. Look, you can look after the poor whenever you want to. You know it's two days before Passover. You won't have me here forever. I'm about to be killed and she has prepared my body for the grave. And I hear him in Bethany, in Simon the leper's house, this woman took the one chance she had to anoint Jesus for burial. And I reckon she did it because she loved him so much. So, so much. She, she loved him with, with that extravagant, over-the-top love. Love that, that didn't bother to count the cost. I mean, more than a wages poured out in a few seconds. And people said, what a waste. You know, next week, next week's passage, verse 24, Jesus talks of something else that was poured out. His blood on the cross. His life. That perfume, that expensive nard in a beautiful bottle, cost a fortune. But how much more costly the price of Christ's life.
I mean, why, why waste the perfume? Because that's the kind of love that God has and that Jesus inspires. I mean, after all, why waste Jesus on a cross? Surely, surely it comes back to love. Love for Jesus. Jesus is love for us. An extravagant love that goes to extremes. A love that is willing to spend all it has. A love that says, I will save you, I will do whatever it takes to rescue you. A love that while we were still sinners died for us. I love that... that, that uh, that hymn by Stuart Townsend, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, How Vast Beyond All Measure, that, that He should give His only Son to make us wretches His treasure. Says Jesus to His disciples, to us, what the woman did was not wasteful. What she did was just a recognition of Easter coming. Says in verse 8, she did what she could. Or to put it another way, what she had, she did. She had this jar of perfume and, and she used that to worship Jesus. Poured it out like it was going out of fashion. Which begs the question, I suppose, of us today. With what we have, do we? What do we do? How, how extravagant is our love for Jesus? How, how much is he worth for us, to us? How much is too much for Jesus? Over the top, ridiculous, stupid. You know, I, I don't doubt for a minute that, that everyone here loves Jesus. I know for a fact the disciples are the same disciples that were accusing this woman love Jesus. Maybe not Judas so much. What does that love look like in action? Let, let's try and put ourselves into that dining room in Bethany, around Simon's table. How would we be reacting to this woman? Would we ever have done what she did? Coming back to today, could we ever do like what she did? She was looking towards the cross, the coming cross of Jesus. And we look back to that same cross. And, and as she looked, his love sparked her love into extravagant outpouring. What sparks when we look to that cross, that love of God? Personally, I'm, I'm not a very uh, overly emotional kind of guy. 
I, I like a, a calm, measured approach to life. But when I look at this story, when I, when I look at what this woman did when she realized where Jesus was going, how can I be calm and collected and sedate when I look to the cross? There's that hymn that says, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. You know, this is a heavy passage, isn't it? It's, it's all about death. It's, it's all about betrayal by Judas. It's all about uh, the deceit and the, the plotting of the chief priests. But just before we end, I, I, I want to just take us on an aside in verse 9. Have a look what Mark writes there. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what this, what this woman has done will also be told in memory of her. Do you know the reason I love that verse is because in the midst of this talk of, of death and betrayal and, and, and human anger against Jesus, Jesus points beyond the cross. Jesus says, wherever the gospel is preached. I mean, that, that's such a, it's not an unusual set of words, but but this is Jesus knowing that he's about to die and he says the gospel, the good news is going to be preached. The good news is going to stretch across the world. Is that Jesus, that light that says, you know, yes, she's anointed me for burial, but, but my death is not going to hold the good news back. Because the good news is the good news of the resurrection. Of Jesus triumphing over the dead. And yes, we do remember, even today, what this woman did. Her wasteful pouring of the perfume over Jesus. But we remember her because we remember Jesus. And his blood poured out for us. Which brings us back to Judas, verse 10, verse 11. In some ways, what we've looked at today is a sandwich. You've got on one slice of bread is the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And the other slice of bread is Judas's betrayal and, and money-grubbing nastiness. And in the middle, you've got this example of the woman pours out everything she has out of love for Jesus. You know, what a contrast between Judas and the chief priests and the woman on the other hand. On the one side, an extravagant love for Jesus. On the other hand, pride, and the love of money. For the woman, the cross of Jesus was worth everything she had in this world. And for Judas, the cross was worth 
about 30 pieces of silver. It's actually, the, if you go back to Exodus, that's the, the cost you would have to pay for a slave who was gored by a bull. Nothing. This Easter, what is the cross worth to us? Amen.